I'm Chris Costello, and welcome to On Cue. I look forward to sharing with you topics and guests which may be out of the ordinary and some very extraordinary people who are making a noticeable imprint in today's world. Vaudeville. The mere mention of the name inspires us with song and dance, comedy acts, acrobats, magic, and more. It was a stepping stone and training ground for many, including Fanny Bryce, Will Rogers, George Burns, and Gracie Allen the Marx Brothers, George Jessel, and many, many more of our iconic greats. But where and how did vaudeville first originate, and what was its importance to American culture? Vaudeville became the heart of American show business and one of the most popular forms of entertainment in North America. Who were the early pioneers who elevated this art form from the concert saloons and variety halls into a more respectable form of entertainment. How and why did New York play a pivotal role in shaping vaudeville as the world would come to know it, and the immigrants who introduced a varied cultural experience onto the vaudeville stage? Here to discuss his book, The Voice of the City, Vaudeville and Popular Culture in New York, is Robert W. Snyder, a professor of journalism and American studies at Rutgers University. Robert is here with me on On Cue to share some fascinating information that will open up history's stage door and take us back into the world of vaudeville. Robert, welcome to On Cue. Great to be with you. Robert, it's so good to have you here on On Cue. Vaudeville has long been an attraction, I think, with anybody who loves the history of the entertainment business. And it actually started back in the 1800s, but not in America, as most of us would believe. In fact, its origin was in France. So I'm curious, how did vaudeville find its way to America? Well, you know, the word first crops up in France in the late Middle Ages, and it's used to refer to satirical songs, country songs, sometimes thought to be Chanson de la Val du Vier, the songs from the Valley of the River Vier. And they would have been sung by minstrels. By the 18th century, the term vaudeville is being applied to performances that are sort of light opera, maybe songs and drama mixed together to create a comic evening of theater. But in the last half of the 19th century, really the 1870s and 1880s on, vaudeville gets used by a new generation of theater entrepreneurs in New York City who want to take old-fashioned variety shows and the song and dance routines found in concert saloons and repackage them, make them something that would be enjoyable by men and women, respectable families out on the town. And they looked around for a name that sounded classier than variety theater, and they settled on vaudeville. New York appears to be a central location for vaudeville, you know, especially in the 19th century. But I was curious, like, okay, why New York? Why not Boston or Chicago or another major city? Most major cities had vaudeville houses, but New York City was certainly the capital of eastern vaudeville. And that's because by the middle of the 19th century, New York was the communications capital of the United States. You had telegraph lines going in and out of the city, sending news and out. You had all sorts of shipping lines bringing immigrants and foreign news to New York City. 
the publishing industry was headquartered in New York City. There was already a legitimate theater scene on Broadway. All that, plus the newspaper industry, made New York City a hub even before the Civil War for communications. So any news about a performer that started in New York City radiated to the rest of the country. And there was already, even before the years of vaudeville, a big popular entertainment scene in New York that the first vaudeville entrepreneurs could draw on. Well, speaking of entrepreneurs, to elevate vaudeville up a notch was Tony Pastor. Now, he was a minstrel singer and actually credited as giving the first performance of what would come to be known as vaudeville. So then he becomes a producer, opens a theater, I believe, Union Square in 1881, with the provision that there would be no liquor in the audience, that material performed on the stage be appropriate for middle-class audiences, which then actually opens the door for women as patrons. So up until this time, vaudeville was geared mainly for male patrons, correct? Yeah. In fact, you know, in the 1840s, 1850s, men had plenty of chances to go out on the town. They could go to saloons. They could go to circuses. They could go to dime museums. They could go to minstrel shows. But performers like Tony Pastor recognized that if they could attract women into their audiences, they could increase their crowds and increase their earnings. So their big challenge was taking old-fashioned variety theater, which was a lot like vaudeville, but often performed in a rougher and rowdier setting, and repackaging it so the husband and wife of a middle-class family might go to a vaudeville show and enjoy it. They'd find just enough naughtiness to be titillated, but nothing so risque that they'd be offended to be there together in person. I always believed that vaudeville consisted mainly of comedians, okay? That's to show you how out of sync I am. But that's not exactly correct. Uh, there was a range of acts who performed on the vaudeville stage from magicians to acrobats to even trained animal acts. But what kind of acts, let's say, went into a good vaudeville show? A good vaudeville show, and this is something one of the early entrepreneurs of vaudeville said, has something for everyone. It has enough naughtiness for people who are looking for naughty stuff. It has enough niceness for people who are looking at nice stuff. And the bill in a vaudeville show, roughly nine acts, would be set out very carefully to have something for everyone. In the beginning, there might be a trick dog act. So people who are arriving late wouldn't miss anything because the act just repeats itself on stage. If they made a noise getting into their seats, they wouldn't disturb anyone who was already sitting and enjoying the show. But the show would move to a climax in the next to closing act. And that was the position every vaudevillian wanted. Along the way, you would have singers, dancers, acrobats, magicians, short sketches, but you'd build up to that next-to-closing slot. And if the evening went well, that performer in the next-to-closing slot brought the house down. Once that performer finished their act, you had one more thing to settle people down, and that was patrons went out and a new audience came in. Interesting. Also, vaudeville and burlesque. They're not the same. They're separate forms of entertainment, correct? Yes. But yet, I've even found myself getting confused, you know, vaudeville, burlesque, whatever, but they're very different. Can you explain the difference between the two? The key difference between vaudeville and burlesque is burlesque's got the stripping element in it. And that's what makes burlesque risque, while vaudeville is determinedly respectable entertainment. Otherwise, there are a lot of similarities. A burlesque show has a sequence of acts. A vaudeville show has a sequence of acts. Burlesque acts and units tour as a group That's different from vaudeville, where the artists tour individually and all assemble on a different theater every week. 
But the key thing is the striptease element in burlesque, that's not there in vaudeville. But vaudeville, instead of the stripper, tried to satisfy people's desire to be slightly risque without being obviously obscene or anything like that. There were not strip acts in vaudeville. There were famous female swimmers who would appear in full body tights, basically, showing how to swim in a tank on stage that was made out of glass. Now, to some, they were just exhibiting swimming techniques, but men who wanted to get a look at a woman in a tight bodysuit could go to look at something else. Eugene Sandow is a famous strongman who would appear on stage in vaudeville in really sort of trunks and dusted, you know, lightly with powder so he looked like a classical ancient Roman statue. He would flex his muscles in all sorts of artistic poses. Again, you could see that and see it as a replica of an ancient Roman statue. Or, if you were a lady, you could see it as a kind of beefcake performance. Okay, but vaudeville and burlesque were not operating at the same time. Did burlesque come in after vaudeville? And did some of the vaudeville performers cross over into that medium as well? There were 19th century forms of burlesque that overlapped with the early years of vaudeville, and they embodied dancing and comedy and girls on stage. And I remember one ad from the years around the 1870s, 1880s, and the ideal female body type then was very different from what it might be today. And a burlesque show was bragging, no dancer under 150 pounds, right? People expected people to look differently back then. But it was the female form that was the attraction in the burlesque show. By the time you get to the 20th century, vaudeville's really fading by the 1930s, but burlesque is still around, and that makes the big difference. Burlesque is naughty, vaudeville's nice, more or less. I love that. I love that. Vaudeville, though, seemed to develop and blossom in a time when immigration here in the U.S. was at an all-time high. It was a fusion of centuries-old cultural traditions including the English Music Hall, the minstrel shows of the South, the Irish stereotypes, even Yiddish theater. So how did immigrants coming to this country contribute to vaudeville, and was it difficult for them to find their break on the vaudeville stage? Immigrants played a very central role in vaudeville, particularly Irish immigrants who were coming into the country and later on Jewish immigrants. Maggie Klein, correct? Maggie Klein, you know, (laughs) was Irish-American, and she was the darling of the newsboys on the Bowery, and when she played in Tony Pastor's music hall, she was an absolute sensation. She was known as the Irish Queen, and she was known as the favorite of downtown New Yorkers in a time when lots of immigrants lived downtown, and she was the darling of newsboys who would show up to hear her put on her act, but also Irish-American political chieftains in Tammany Hall. She had a famous act that she would do, a song called Throw Him Down McCluskey, about a boxing match between an African-American fighter and McCluskey, an Irish-American fighter. And the chorus is Throw Him Down McCluskey. And when she sang out that chorus, all the newsboys would take their piled-up newspapers and slam them to the floor together so you heard the sound (laughs) of heavy weight hitting the floor. And she was a national star. You know, she started on the Bowery and she started at Tony Pastor's, but her reputation grew nationwide. And she was once singing a song that ended on the lines, don't let me die till I see Ireland. And a wise guy called out from the cheap seats, well, why don't you go there? And she said, Nit, it's too far from the Bowery. And the crowd just roared and she swaggered off stage. Well, not too many people know, though, Robert, that Maggie Klein really was not born in Ireland. She was born, I think, in Massachusetts. Yes. Her parents were born in Ireland. Exactly. Now, here's the thing about Maggie Klein and other artists like that. For the children of immigrants 
Vaudeville was a way to become an American. Vaudeville was a way to reach a mass audience. And that's true for Irish-American artists like Maggie Klein, but it's also for Jewish artists in later years, in the 1890s and the 1910s. Early vaudeville had a lot of Irish tap dancing in it. It had a lot of Irish fiddle music in it. But as Irish Americans settled into the United States and became more American than Irish, the Irish American character evolved on the stage. So he went from being portrayed as an immigrant greenhorn just off the boat from Ireland to maybe being a Tammany Hall politician who was well settled in New York City. But even the Yiddish theater, let's take Sophie Tucker. Didn't she open up that door? Yes. I mean, Sophie Tucker, for example, started out in the world of Yiddish theater. She lived in Hartford, Connecticut when she was a young woman. She lived in the same apartment building as my grandmother. But she figured out that there was more money in the mainstream. And one after another, artists like her might have started in the Yiddish theater, but then looked towards big-time vaudeville as a way to reach a national audience and make more money. That didn't mean they lost significance for Jewish audience members out there watching them in the vaudeville stage, but they gained a fan following in a much broader community as stars in big-time vaudeville. Well, you know, vaudeville and even burlesque had what they called the circuits. Now, in burlesque, you had the Columbia and the Mutual Wheel. I know there were the clean and maybe the more risque circuits, but there was also a black vaudeville circuit. These were unique as the black performers brought a different experience that the white performers could not convey. Looking at some of the performers, the Nicholas Brothers, Step and Fetch It, Moms Mabley, Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen, of which we know from Gone with the Wind, even Bill Bojangles Robinson, plus many, many more, all started on the vaudeville stage. Mm -hmm. So what part did African-Americans play in vaudeville? The lives of African-American performers in vaudeville were very complex. Usually, the bookers who put together a vaudeville show would allow one black act in a vaudeville bill that had maybe eight or nine acts in it. They'd put one black act in that. Sometimes that might be a dancer, sometimes that might be a singer. And often, when those African-American vaudevillians appeared on stage, they're asked to put on blackface makeup. That was an inheritance from minstrel show days. Now, these were African-Americans, but they were asked to put on blackface makeup so they would conform to the stereotype. And that was really demeaning. They had to put up with it. Ubi Blake, for example, appeared in vaudeville. And when he was supposed to appear at the palace, when they were first looking at him, they suggested that he and Noble Sissel walk onto the stage as a couple of hayseeds in overalls. And they'd look at a piano and say, well, that's a piano. What can you do with that? And they just thought that was so demeaning. And the booker at the Keith Albee Theater in the palace said, you know, these guys are for real. They're great piano players. They should get to play looking like the real gentlemen that they are. And he insisted that they perform in suits and jackets and look formal and look right. And, and Blake was always really proud of that. There was a total circuit, the Theater Owners Booking Association, African-American performers moved around on that, and then they could move over into the spots that were available in big-time vaudeville. It's also true that there were segregated seating practices in vaudeville theaters. I talked to a lot of old-time vaudevillians, old-time vaudeville audience members. They could remember seeing African-American performers on stage, 
they didn't remember seeing that many black people in the audience with them. And I think that's a distinct problem that African-American artists faced. It was hard for them to get to the big time theater. And what about the South? That's the dilemma. There's a vaudeville scene in the South that caters to black artists and black audiences. And the world is fairly separate. The vaudeville that I know most is the vaudeville of New York City. And as in so many other things there, it was tough to come to grips with the fact that there was a considerable degree of racial segregation in New York, even though you like to think of that as something that was practiced elsewhere. So between the late 1800s and early 1930s, what would it be like for someone to go see a vaudeville show? You know, it appeared to progress from being male-dominated to welcoming the middle class and women But what about families? Were families uh, finally integrated into the audience so that they could see wholesome family entertainment? Or was it still mostly more of an adult venue? Vaudeville worked really on two levels. There was big-time vaudeville and small-time vaudeville. Big-time vaudeville really, you know, by 1915, 1916, that meant the Palace Theater in Times Square. And that was the summit of every vaudeville artist's ambitions. All around the rest of New York, in neighborhoods in downtown Brooklyn, in Yorkville on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, in Harlem, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there would be smaller theaters that were called part of small-time vaudeville. That was the minor leagues of vaudeville, the place where you worked your way up and you finally hoped to land at the palace someday if you were doing really, really well. So for ordinary New Yorkers, vaudeville was something they could find in their neighborhoods. They didn't have to leave their home neighborhood to see a vaudeville show. And it meant that live theater was part of the everyday lives of ordinary New Yorkers. That's an extraordinary thing when you think about it. It wasn't something special or precious or rare. It was something you could go to every week. Proctor's Vaudeville House had a slogan. It was open continuously around the day. And their slogan was, after breakfast, go to Proctor's, after Proctor's, go to bed. You couldn't stay at Proctor's all day if you wanted to. Most people didn't. But vaudeville was there for everyone, and that was what made it so beloved. It was a treat for kids to go to a vaudeville show. It was inexpensive for kids to go to movies and Nickelodeons, and I think a lot more parents packed their kids into Nickelodeons and movie theaters to amuse them on a weekday or weekend afternoon. But vaudeville was available in the neighborhoods, and then if you wanted to make a special trip to Times Square to see the top acts, you would go to the Palace Theater and find them there. I was thinking about life on the road. You know the old expression, I grew up in a trunk, or I was born in a trunk, you know? (laughs) And it's so true. What was life like on the road for a vaudeville performer back then? I mean, today... Robert, people go on tour and they stay in the luxury hotels. They're wined and dined, chauffeured around, and they get the star treatment. But was it similar back then? It varied. It depended (laughs) how big you were, okay? And vaudevillians played a different theater every week. They converged from all points of the compass on one theater, and they did their act. And then when the week was up, they moved on to another theater. Their bookings were set, if they were in the East, in the Keith Albee organization offices on Times Square. And they would settle in, do their act, then move on to another city and another theater. It could be a really tough life. You had to live out of a suitcase. Sometimes when you went into a strange town, it could feel lonely. It could feel like you didn't have a friend. On the other hand, I've met old guys who toured in vaudeville who loved it. They'd meet different girls in every city they performed in. I met a woman who was a Polish-American longshoreman's daughter. Her name was Frances Poplowski, and she was a dancer and an acrobat. 
And she realized that she could make big money in vaudeville as an acrobatic dancer. And she loved it. She toured. She got her schedule of theaters lined up. And she would be in a different theater every week. And she had a steady paycheck and a a decent place to stay. And she found it a really good life. It allowed her to get into a middle class level of living as a performer that I think would have been very hard for her otherwise. There's a great quote from Minnie Marks, who's the mother of Groucho Marx and uh, the boys. When asked, she said why she sent her children into show business. And she said, well, where else can people who don't know anything make so much money? Exactly. I love that line. So, I mean, you're looking at the rise of radio motion pictures. How did the vaudevillians respond to this? I mean, did many find a successful crossover into those two mediums? Because we know Hattie McDaniels and Butterfly McQueen two of my favorite actresses, because I love Gone with the Wind, went on to find work in films. Uh, Even the Marx Brothers, you know, wound up becoming giants in the world of comedy. Did they really make a lot of money back then? It was really interesting to see how film and radio both related to vaudeville. A lot of the first silent pictures are simply a camera trained on vaudeville acts. So if you want to know what a vaudeville act looked like, Go look it up in the Paper Prince film collection of the Library of Congress. You will see cameras that were just trained on the stage and captured in the performer in all their glory. Where it got trickier was when vaudevillians started to make the transition to radio. Because some of the early vaudevillians, when they went over into radio, found themselves recording in studios. And vaudevillians lived and died on their relationship to the audience. They prided themselves on their ability to reach out and connect with the people in the theater. But when they're in a studio and all they're doing is playing to a camera, it could be very difficult for them to put the number over with the same vitality. So some smart studios would put together a studio audience. And in that way, the vaudevillian could perform to the audience in the studio, and they'd come alive in that way. Vaudeville performers really thrived on their ability to connect with everybody in the house And the best of them brought that to radio and then to film. A great example of a vaudevillian who succeeded in film is Jimmy Cagney, who said everything he knew he learned in vaudeville. Think of those jazz steps that he uses in Yankee Doodle Dandy. Think of the way he carries himself so cocky and sort of swaggering and tough all at the same time on stage. That's something he picked up on the street corners of New York and then carried into vaudeville and then into motion pictures. You know, another celebrity, this is going to floor you if you don't know it already, is Sammy Davis Jr. He Mm -hmm. actually started out in vaudeville as part of a trio. Mm -hmm. And he went on to become a giant success. But, uh, I mean, I couldn't believe that. Well, vaudeville had an afterlife, right? By the 1930s, the big thing in the theaters was the motion picture. But a big movie theater would often have acts before and after the show. And people strung out their vaudeville careers that way. And that carried on in the palace and other places. So if a guy like Sammy Davis Jr. could have those vaudeville years that were important to him. I'm a big Sammy Davis Jr. fan, and Mm -hmm. I loved it when he would get out there on stage. He just lit up. And with Mm -hmm. his dance steps, I mean, he told a whole story just by using his feet. You know, but I was curious, you know, how do you feel vaudeville has influenced American culture? And are there any traces of vaudeville left in New York City today? Although I do know the Ed Sullivan show is probably the closest one would come to comparing uh, in modern day to vaudeville. The Ed Sullivan show is a great example of a vaudeville show put together and put on the television screen to provide something for everyone. 
I think about vaudeville in American culture in a couple ways. One is it's the formative period in American show business where so many great people get their start. And then they carry over into radio and motion pictures in the 30s and the 40s. It's also where a lot of the formative business practices in American entertainment get started, with New York being an important place for booking and agents and performers who then radiate out all over the country. The vaudeville era was so unlike our own in this way. The vaudevillian entrepreneurs put together shows with something for everyone. They tried to get everybody into one theater, and that meant inevitably confronting people with things they weren't familiar with. Naughty people got confronted with nice stuff. Nice people encountered stuff that was a little bit naughty. Native-born people encountered stuff done by immigrants. Immigrants encountered stuff done by native-born people. And it was a very heterogeneous audience, and it was a heterogeneous cast of performers. And they rubbed off on each other. They shared influences. Everybody came away from the experience transformed. Now, when we're all in niches, it's much harder to compare and share experiences compared to the way it was in the vaudeville days. Also, I've got to tell you something. You know when you were speaking in French in the beginning? From the Valley of the River, the Val de Vire, yeah. I was trying to see if I could retrieve some of my French from when I went to high school, and I said, there's no way I can do this. You know, you did it beautifully. Did you live in France? No, I did not, no. (laughs) I'm a mimic, I guess. Can you please share a little bit more of that French you know, sure, as we let me close try it again. Off. I'm happy to, okay? Okay. The, the word vaudeville goes back to late medieval French, chansons de vaudeville, songs from the valley of the river Vire. Other people think it means, in translation, vaudeville, voice of the city. And I was always taken with the translation of voice of the city because I think vaudeville was the voice of New York City as the late 19th century gave way to the 20th century. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to start practicing my French the minute I leave the show. (laughs) Thank you, Rob, so much. It was such a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Robert Snyder for joining me here on On Cue, talking about his book, The Voice of the City, Vaudeville and Popular Culture in New York, which you can purchase through Amazon, even Barnes & Noble. It's a wonderful read. It's a true look into the world of vaudeville. Thanks for listening to On Cue. I invite you to visit our Facebook page, On Cue Chris Costello, for more information and for upcoming guests. Remember, each of us has a voice and a story. So until next time, share a smile, laugh often, be kind to each other, and let's help make this an even better world.